Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Today, we have with us author Stephen Hawley Martin, who has been with us before. And he's got a fantastic book out, and the book is called The Witch of Amesbury, Matriarch of an Advertising Dynasty. And uh, I don't know if you remember Stephen's background, but he was the, he was the top guy at the Martin Agency in Richmond. And he's the guy who came up with the Geico Lizard, which we still see on TV today, and with Virginia is for Lovers. A beautiful little statement that a lot of other states have copied, but in my understanding, Stephen, you were the first with that. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, that was quite a while ago. It was 1968. We, we had the Virginia tourism account, and uh, we said, uh, you know, we were trying to come up with a theme we said, you know, Virginia's for mountain lovers, Virginia's for history lovers, Virginia's for beach lovers, Virginia's for theme park lovers, and finally we just decided to drop the ad uh, adjective and say Virginia's for lovers, and the rest is history. Please tell us a little bit about this story and what inspired you to write it, and who inspired you to write it. Well, it was my mother who inspired me to write it, but uh, it took me a long time to get around to doing it. I, I grew up hearing all about my ancestor, Susanna North Martin, who was uh, tried, accused, tried, and convicted of witchcraft back in 1692, Salem, Massachusetts, and she was hanged. You know, pictures are hung, people are hanged, and... Uh, I, I guess my mother was kind of an early feminist uh, in that she was a successful advertising woman, and that was not something back in the 1950s when I was growing up that women were expected to do, and so she really was caught under the collar that her husband's ancestor, Susanna, had been accused of witchcraft and hanged, and I heard about it all the time. And, you know, one of the main reasons was that this uh, Susanna was quite a... Uh, quite a feminist in her own right for somebody back in the 17th century. She was in her 70s at the time she was in, accused, and yet she was uh, able to run the farm and uh, be successful at it, and that was something wom women weren't supposed to be able to do, especially one that was that old, you know, plowing the field and chopping the wood and all that. So I, I grew up hearing about that all my life and a lot of stories and lore that went along with it and I finally decided I was going to take some time dig into the historical record and uh, see what I could find out for myself was Susanna really actually uh, practicing witchcraft for example and what about the other 19 or so that were uh, accused and executed so that's it's amazing how much informable today about what went on back then it was there all the trial depositions uh, all the trial testimony the depositions leading up to the trials uh, a lot of eyewitness accounts are still available you can find all that sort of thing online and i've i've read it all and a lot of it's in this book it focuses on my ancestor susanna north martin who was also who was called the witch of amesbury because she was not really not from salem she was from a town uh, a little ways away called Amesbury, Massachusetts. And, but uh, I bring in all, a lot of the other characters that were uh, part of it. So that's what got me going was growing up with it. And uh, be, I'm kind of a nonconformist because of it. I don't take what, uh, what uh, people in authority <laughs> say at, 
you know, as, at face value. I have to look into it and find out for myself whether it's real or not. I found so. the story to be very, very interesting. You did a great deep dive in terms of the actual history. And since we're a history show, I'd kind of like you to explain to our listeners, especially our young listeners, what was the difference back then between Puritans and Christians and everybody else? What was the pressure on Puritans that, that might have kind of been the boiling point for all this? Yeah, well, for, first off, it's important to realize that Massachusetts was a colony that was uh, chartered by King James, uh, King Charles I, who uh, decided to let the uh, Puritans, the Puritan sect, to have their own colony where they could go, and, and it was a theocracy. The Bible was the uh, legal document that everything was based upon. Yeah, the Puritans were different than most Christians in that they uh, they believed that life was a test. Uh, Christians uh, nowadays, most of them believe that all you need to do is believe in Jesus, believe that he lived and died for your sins and accept him as your savior and you you know you ride his coattails coattails into heaven but the puritans didn't believe that necessarily you had to follow all the rules you had to do everything right if you were a puritan but even then even if you did uh, dot all the i's and cross all the t's and do what you're supposed to do you might not make it into heaven because you weren't one of the chosen so I believe this uh, in the Bible. There's a there's a piece of scripture that says, "Many are called, but few are chosen," and that's what they believed. That you could do it all right and still uh, end up going to hell. And so, if someone felt that they were not one of the chosen for whatever reason, then they might uh, turn to Satan and. Uh, go, uh, you know, form a pact with him to, because then Satan would uh, uh, help them have a better life. And they might go to hell as a result of it, but at least between then and when they did, they would have a good life. So that, that was kind of the situation that Puritans were in. They, they had, they could follow all the rules and still go to hell, or they could, uh, they could, go over to the dark side and maybe have a good life, at least while they're here. So uh, I think that there were some, I know that there were some uh, who were practicing witchcraft back then. Uh, in fact, in my book, is uh, I, I talk about a couple of cases that uh, took place before the witch hysteria in Massachusetts in 1692, just a few years before. If you can recall them now, that'd be great. Yeah, one of them, I think the one that really struck me the most was a, a woman named Goody uh, Glover, and she was definitely practicing witchcraft. I mean, she <laughs> didn't, uh, you know, make any bones about it. She, he called, she called Satan her prince, and she had conversations with him. I think today that uh, she'd probably be diagnosed as schizophrenic or something because she heard these voices. But she, for example, in the one of the in their trial, uh, the uh, prosecutors brought in effigy dolls, voodoo dolls, you might call them, where you know a witch would make one of these 
effigies, one of these dolls that was supposed to represent someone that she was trying to get back at, for example, and she would torture it, stick pins in it and things like that. They brought, so they brought in uh, an effigy doll. Yeah. So in her trial, uh, the prosecutors brought in an effigy doll and handed it to her, and she began stroking it. And when she did, one of the witnesses, one of the accusers who said that she'd been torturing her, him, fell on the floor in agony, in pain, because uh, apparently he f thought that that effigy doll was him and he, he was being tortured, which to me shows the power of belief. I, people back then believed in witchcraft. They believed that it was possible. They believed that there was a whole non-physical realm that existed that, uh, that uh, surrounds us, and they believed in Satan. So I think that one of the messages of my story, of my no uh, this is not a novel, it's, it's nonfiction, is that belief is very powerful, and I think that that was a big part of what was going on back then that caused these things. Because I don't think that people were necessarily faking it all the time. You know, that's kind of what the historical record has come around to tell us, that uh, these little girls, for example, who started the whole thing were just accusing people uh, as a kind of power trip. But I don't think that was true. So That's amazing. You know, yeah, there I, you I kind of went the other direction when I was, when I was doing that story. And it looked to me like... Um, the, the, the teen, basically young teens who were doing all right. the acting uh, were being put up to it uh, by yeah. their parents who benefited or profited in some way from the death of those people. Either they didn't like them or they wanted their farm or et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of people have made ties in that direction as well. Yeah, I think that there may have been some of that going on. Uh, there were definitely people who benefited because of uh, property that you know someone owned that they wanted or or they had a vendetta against them but the, the just so our listeners know the whole thing started because of these children who uh well daughters of the the reverend paris who mm -hmm. was the kind of preacher the yeah the um the pastor for the Puritans in Salem town was uh, a man named uh, Reverend P Paris, P-A-R-R-I-S. And he and his wife uh, spent a lot of time out, you know, ministering to their flock. And so they left their children, the two daughters, at home with a slave uh, and her husband. Uh, Tituba was her name. Her husband's name was John. And they were... Uh, from Barbados. They, were, I believe, were Carib Indians. And uh, they, Paris had, and his wife had been in Barbados before, and they brought these slaves with them to uh, Massachusetts. And Tituba entertained the children with her magic trick, tricks. She, uh, I suppose, had grown up, you know, with kind of a voodoo, pantheistic religion, uh, whatever they Indians there in that part of the world believed in. And uh, so she had these magic tricks that she did. One of them would be to tell their fortune by 
pouring egg white into a glass of water and watching how how it formed or whatever. So and these children, the two daughters, well, I think one was eight and the other one was twelve, and they had friends over. Uh, other girls that were ranged anywhere from eight to, I think the oldest was probably about 16, about a half a dozen of them, came over and were entertained by Tituba, the slave. And they knew that they shouldn't be doing that, that it was taboo to uh, to be playing around with the occult or with anything paranormal, that it was demonic. They knew that. They were the preacher's children. And it was definitely not allowed uh, by the Puritans. I mean, there were three degrees of magic. Uh, one was white magic, you know, where you use horseshoes and rabbit's feet and that sort of thing to have good luck. Then there was uh, the kind that's just a uh, kind of using magic to get your what it, whatever you want. And then there's the worst kind, which is a pact with Satan. And <laughs> I guess... This what Tichuba was doing didn't fall into the white uh, magic category. It was more in the middle. And anyway, they knew they shouldn't be doing it. And they started having these symptoms where they felt they were being attacked by specters, what like ghosts, people's uh, spirit coming to attack them. And they, you know, would fall on the floor and writhe in pain and so forth. And so their father, the preacher, wanted to know who was doing that, who was coming to get you. And I suppose they, you know, they believed it. I don't know. I think they believed it was happening to them because, you know, why would they do that otherwise? But because they weren't out to get somebody's land or to get back at somebody. But they ended up accusing the town beggar, um, whose name was Sarah Good. And she was probably looked like a witch uh, she was you know going around begging and and she would stay at people's houses and they'd you know get tired of her because she'd smoked a pipe and she'd uh, <laughs> set the place on fire or whatever so anyway that's how it all began and and it just mushroomed from that uh, so my analysis of it is there were there was at least one of the of the lady women who were accused who was accused that was probably uh, a witch or at least thought she was who was who was using magic uh, for her own uh, gain and uh, but most of them were not and uh, anyway that's where that's kind of where I came out it was quite a lesson in hysteria in in mass hysteria where reason just seems to go out the window and there were a lot of people in positions of authority who could have straightened it out, but they preferred to be quiet. I remember there was a story of one of the judges who just after, after listening to this for a few weeks said, I can't take this anymore, and he just walked out. He did yeah. not believe the testimony. He didn't believe what was going on. But these other judges were happy to hang him. Yeah, they, uh, you know, if you didn't believe it, and and there were you're right there were people in fact there was a baptist preacher who later on came to uh, the judges and said you guys are nuts i mean you can't use this kind of what they call spectral evidence the mm -hmm. idea that people see somebody's spirit come to them and torture them uh now his position would have been 
that it could be Satan taking their form and doing it. And, and that you're, you know, you're accusing this person when it's probably not even their spirit. He didn't mm -hmm. doubt the spirits were coming. He just didn't think you could use that as evidence to hang somebody. <laughs> but, you know, the, uh, the judges, uh, Hawthorne was one that I think he was the grandfather or something like that of the Hawthorne with the house of the seven gables. Uh, he was very willing to, to use the spectral evidence. And, uh, the preachers, one of the big, big guys was, uh, Cotton Mather. Uh, he allowed it for a while, but uh, his father, uh, increased Mather didn't really go along with it. So there was argument back and forth. And if you disagreed with these people, <laughs> they might accuse you of being a witch uh, or a wizard, if you were a male, there were two men who were accused, and one was executed. The other was uh, killed because they piled stones on his chest trying to get him to make a plea. Was he pleading guilty or not guilty? And they couldn't try him under their law unless he made a plea. Are you guilty or not? And he refused to say either one. And so in order to get him to make a plea, uh, they laid him down and they started piling stones on his chest. And they piled stones on his chest uh, until he, he finally uh, said famous last words, more weight, and the, put a, the last stone on his chest and it crushed his chest and killed him. So he was never actually tried. But he was executed. And that was the sheriff, wasn't it, who put that last stone yeah, on? I think he was standing was a, on it at the time. Yeah, he was a fairly, and you know, the, it's just amazing that uh, what went on, you know, back then. The people that were accused, one of the people, the guy who was hanged, the man who was hanged had been preacher, had preacher there previously. Mm -hmm. And he had uh, gone on and I believe actually lived in Maine or something like that. I've forgotten how they got him back down to uh, to Salem. but Indian attacks, I think, brought him down yeah, the first time. There were, that was one of the things. Maybe the second uh, time as well. Yeah, that uh, Indians were a big problem for this, for the people back then at that time. And that was one of the things that I think led to the hysteria that was going on around. Because the people thought the Indians, well, they were heathens. They were pantheists, I guess we would call them today. They, and they, the Puritans felt they were in league with the devil and they, you know, they were, they were having fights with them. So that was a big part of why they were so on edge that uh, they felt like these Indians that they were fighting with were, uh, were in league with the devil. And, and so they were constantly fighting the devil. We'll return to our interview with Stephen Holly Martin right after these sponsor messages. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. We need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Yeah, so Indians in league with the devil were, was one of the things that uh, that caused them to be so on edge about uh, Satan being around, causing them trou troubles. 
And it just got out of hand. There were over 150 people who were accused by the time the thing finally came to an end. And let me tell you how it came to an end, because it's interesting. Uh, according to Martin family lore, what my mother and father said was that uh, Susanna, our ancestor, uh, actually, after she was hanged, that she came to the governor, Governor Phelps, and told him, she, her ghost came to him, her spirit came to him, and told him that his wife was going to be next. And in fact, when his wife was accused, that's when the whole thing ended. But the main argument against it, uh, and the reason they ended it, they said, was because spectral evidence should not be allowed in court. And, and in fact, in England, it was not. Uh, and these people were considered themselves English. So the reason it was, I guess, is because they uh, uh, Massachusetts was a theocracy, and in uh, the Bible, I think it's in Deuteronomy, which is uh, or Exodus, where uh, after the Ten Commandments are given, yeah, Exodus is where they're given to Moses. After that, there are a bunch of laws that um, that are stated, and one of them is, "Thou shalt not allow a sorceress to live," and so that was their authority to execute. In the United States, or the old in America, it wasn't the United States yet, uh, people were hanged. In Europe, in France, Spain, Germany, they were burned at the stake. Uh, so it was a terrible time. And uh, I think people realized after it was over that they had made a huge, huge, huge mistake and uh, felt very guilty about it as a result. I had a question for you. Ever since you found out that you had a witch in the family, did that change your outlook on anything? It absolutely did. I uh, believe you, it. Do you well, attend covens internationally, or? <laughs> well, you know, I've tried working magic, but it doesn't seem to work for me as well. <laughs> but <laughs> I wish I could. What it's done is uh, caused me to be a little bit of a nonconformist. My mother was uh, very, very uh, beside herself about how all that had happened. And, you know, she, as I think I mentioned earlier, she was kind of an early feminist. And and so she was a kind of anti-Christian fundamentalist. Uh, so I grew up that way. But what it did for me personally, I believe, is make me uh, not always accept what people in authority said as necessarily being true. I wanted to find out for myself. And it kind of made me into a nonconformist, which I think uh, I attribute my success in advertising and writing to that. The fact that uh, I'm not don't go along with the crowd. You know, I want to find something different. I want to find, uh, you know, what the real truth is or what really works and not necessarily what conventional wisdom says it should be. And so I think to create successful advertising like the Geico Gecko or whatever, you need to have a little bit of that uh, personality in you that says, you know, I'm not going to go along with the crowd. I'm going to do something different. I've got a double question for you. One is, did people back in that time, in the late 17th century, did they have many things to read that weren't of a religious nature? How, what was their intelligence level? How, how were they able to, to look at events and, and, and gauge what was going on in an intelligent fashion? And behind that question, if you could explain chapter four, Hobbes 
won the battle, but lost the war. If you could kind yeah. of explain all that together, that would be helpful. Yeah. Um, one thing you that I devote a little bit of time to in this book, a little bit, a few pages to, chapter or so, is what the world view was in the 17th century. People back then did not know, understand much about uh, science. For example, they didn't know that germs cause illness. They didn't know that germs existed. Uh, I think there was a Dutchman who was a lens grinder who's, who spotted what he called animacules in stagnant water, uh, which were little tiny microscopic uh, organisms, but he had no idea that they caused illness. And in fact, that wasn't discovered until the 19th century, the late 19th century with uh, Louis Pasteur and all that. So uh, they didn't understand that germs caused illness, so they thought the devil did it or that a witch put a curse on a cow and the cow dropped dead or stopped giving milk. They really did not understand science. And as far as Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes was an English philosopher. He, he wrote the Levithian. But one of the things that he said, and there was that uh, the only thing that exists is physical reality. He did not believe in a spiritual world. He said, Hobbes' rationale was that God made the universe, and the universe is physical reality, matter, we would say, in modern terminology, and that's all there is. There is no non-physical realm, no beyond the veil, no heaven, no hell. It's all here right now, and that's it. And uh, the his words really are what people, a lot of people believe today. Scientific materialists believe that, that, that all that exists is physical matter. It certainly was what caused the, uh, one of the th causes of the uh, Age of Enlightenment, <clears throat> where people like Thomas Jefferson and many of the founding fathers were called deists. And they believed what Thomas Hobbes said, which is that only physical reality exists, and uh, so their view, Thomas Jefferson's view, for example, was that God was the great clockmaker. He wound it up. He created the laws of the, you know, physical laws and so forth of the universe, gravity and all that. And he wound it up and let it go. And now uh, all that exists is what you can see. If you can't see it under a microscope, it doesn't exist. So... That was what Hobbes uh, said, and uh, he eventually won the uh, battle because people believe that. I think he lost the war because we're coming around to realize that there's a lot more to reality than what you can see under a microscope. I mean, just think about it. Uh, you're probably watching this on a computer, and your computer is somehow linked to the Internet through something you can't see, which is the, uh, you know, the waves that it picks up, just like your cell phone, you get a call, and there's a signal coming into the cell phone. So there are a lot of things you can't see. And in fact, the universe is not made up of matter, it's made up of energy, E equals MC squared. And so 
everything is energy and there's a lot of stuff going on that you can't see. I guess that's where I come out. And uh, in my books, a lot of them, I investigate paranormal stuff and I believe that there's a lot of paranormal stuff that goes on. And there was probably paranormal stuff going on in Salem back uh, 400 years ago, or however long it's been now, uh, back in 1692. I mean, I think there were some things that uh, cannot be explained. That uh, Read the book and you'll see what I'm talking about. I tend to agree with you, and, and you're right about the book. The book goes into a lot of that. And the, the real message is, and it should be for a lot of people, don't play with black magic. Don't dally with the devil. Uh, and especially, I think, when you're young, you tend to have a curiosity and you want to find out about those things, whether it be through a Ouija board or, or your friends who are having a Friday night uh, seance or whatever. Uh, you don't know what you're dealing with, uh, I think, is the most honest advice that uh, uh, yeah. you can give. That's absolutely correct, John. I, uh, You know, the whole Ouija board thing, I have a little couple of paragraphs about that. I did a Google search, Ouija warning. Do it. Put that into Google. You'll see hundreds, if not thousands, of people who have had very strange and sometimes very scary experiences mm -hmm. because they were playing with Ouija boards. So, yep. Yep. I think, I think, uh, I think not so nice spirits can attach themselves to you. You don't know how long in life they're going to stay with you, but uh, I am a believer in that. Uh, call me hysterical, please, if you want to, listeners. I'm hysterical when it comes to that, I guess, but it's something I just. Uh, gave up on a long, long time ago in life and said, leave that door closed. Yeah, you know, I've uh, had a podcast some years ago and I interviewed two different psychiatrists who deal with spirit possession. And, you know, it. what happens is when you die, most people have probably heard about or know about uh, near-death experiences where someone pops out of their body because they're, you know, on the operating table and they've their heart stopped and they see a light and they go to the light and they're greeted by family members who've gone before and all that. Everybody knows about those stories. Well, some people who don't believe that there is an afterlife don't know to look for the light and they become very confused and they often stay on what it's called this astral plane, that's just where we are now in the physical realm, but people can't see them or hear them, and so they they will attach themselves to someone who is vulnerable, and that's mm -hmm. what these psychiatrists uh, uh, treat. And and they're not they're not uh, religious. I mean, the Catholic Church still does exorcisms, but I'm talking about psychiatrists who are able to communicate through the individual by hypnotizing them and talk. One case that stands out in my mind was a woman who started having physical problems and the psychiatrist hypnotized her and was able to find that it was her father who had been looking for a place to be because he didn't see the light and he kind of attached himself to his daughter and his daughter started ha having the physical problems that the father had had. So the psychiatrist was able, psychiatrist was able to talk to the deceased father and explain to him that he was not helping his daughter at all and that he ought to look for the light and go to it, which he eventually did. So that that's an example of something like that that can happen. I mean, scientific materialists 
will go crazy when they hear this story. But it, <laughs> I'm talking about a psychiatrist who, who uh, you know, is Phi Beta Kappa and, you know, and so there you go. Stephen, for the sake of history, for the sake of our younger listeners, I'd like you to describe what took place when the hangings started in Salem. There were hangings in Boston, and then it moved to Salem. And your uh, great-grandmother, to the nth degree, was one of those first ones. Could you describe exactly what the public and the judges uh, did on that day of their hanging, how those people were brought to a, a specific spot and what happened to them. And the reason, the reason I'm asking you this is because I want to clearly illustrate what mass hysteria can do to a population of people. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, the, uh, the first hangings took place on July, I believe, 19th, 1692. And they were all women. I think there were five of them, including my uh, grandmother, Susanna, seven times great-grandmother, Susanna North Martin. They were, they were put in carts drawn by horses, taken out of Salem Village to a place called Gallows Hill, where there were trees. And they were, they put a rope up around a branch, brought it down, and they would have a ladder and take the woman up the ladder and uh, put tension on the rope around their neck. They would put a hood over their head and they would kick the ladder out from under them and they would drop. And it would, if they were lucky, it would break their neck immediately. If they weren't lucky, they would essentially be strangled to death. Uh, because of the rope uh, and, you know, cutting off their wind, windpipe. So that's how they were executed. And then they were not uh, allowed to be buried in the cemetery along with other people, the Christians, the, the Puritans. Uh, they, had, they were kind of buried in unmarked graves. And uh, that was what they did. And it was just horrendous. I mean, they would... People came out to watch, you know, there'd be a big crowd uh, watching these hangings, you know, one after the other, boom, 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 boom. And they're dangling at the end of a rope. Ugly, ugly situation. Explain, I can't imagine. Describe what happened with Sarah Good and the legend that surrounded that. Yeah, Sarah Good, uh, I think we mentioned her earlier in the in the interview that she was the town beggar. And she was the first one accused. And when when she was taken out to be hanged, uh, she uh, told the preacher, who I, I can't remember his name right offhand, but the the guy, it wasn't Reverend Paris. It was like the Nicholas assistant. Noise, I believe. Yeah, Nicholas Noise. She told him that she was no more a witch than he was a wizard, and if he takes her life he will choke on his own blood. And sure enough, 20 years later or so, when, when Nicholas died, he had some kind of a hemorrhage and he indeed choked on his own blood. So, uh, you know, there was a curse that came to, to be. And I think it probably because of the power of suggestion, the power of belief. Uh, Nicholas believed that that would happen to him and it did. 
amazingly so. There you go. And then when George Burroughs, a preacher, was put to death on Gallows Hill, he went to his maker as a good, as a good Christian would wish to, you wrote. He stood straight and faced his accusers and recited the Lord's Prayer word for word from beginning to end, making no errors. That's correct. And you know that a witch was not supposed to be able to do that. So having done that, that really put the shock in them because a witch who was in league with the devil was not supposed to be able to even say the word God, much less recite the Lord's Prayer word for word without making a mistake. I think one of the most interesting stories in the book was when Cotton Mather uh, took the, the Goodwin children, who supposedly had been uh, cursed and put under a spell by uh, Goodwife Glover, who was the witch who was, she was a witch. Uh, she is the one who had the um, relationship with Satan that she talked to him and so forth. Well, and uh, he, he took those children into his house and they displayed some amazing uh, characteristics. One of them actually apparently levitated. Uh, if, if I don't see how that's possible, but I've heard it in other cases. So that's a story that I would uh, that I found fascinating when I did the research on it. Is and Cotton Mather, he was a smart guy. He was a preacher, but uh, and he was a Puritan preacher. But he, you know, he was well. Yeah, he was well connected, wasn't his father the uh, president of Harvard? Yeah, I believe so. And he was he had gone to Harvard, too. And so, yeah, uh, the Goodwin children, uh, read about that. You'll be amazed at what, uh, what happened with them. There were a lot of different themes in your book here, themes that we didn't even come close to discussing today. Uh, but they are very interesting, listeners. Uh, and he takes, Stephen takes a lot of different directions with this. It's all, it's all wrapped into a story. But he takes, uh, with an open mind, he looks at everything surrounding the hysteria, what causes it, uh, what ended it, uh, people's attitudes, people's attitudes about spiritualism, about life uh, and death. And it's, uh, it's really quite interesting. I've got to admit, I could not help but make a connection between the hysteria that existed in Salem in 1692 and the hysteria that exists today with regard to COVID and people's livelihoods being taken away because they're vaxxed or unvaxxed. And this has become a dividing point between a lot of Americans. I'm not going to go deep into it, but I do think a lot of this is, is hysteria connected because not all the information is getting out to people so they can make a judgment on their own. I think people should be able to make their own judgment without being forced. And that's just my opinion. But the fact this book explains a lot to me in terms of people needing to keep an open mind and question. Don't just accept everything you hear as fact without checking it out yourself. I think that's fair enough of me to say without going any further. I would. Uh, would you agree to that? And would you agree that? And would you agree that Australia is 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 currently today Salem? I would agree a hundred percent with that. Uh, you know, I I uh, just think that people have gone nuts with this whole thing. I mean, really, 
I don't want to get into it too deeply either because, uh, you know, you never know that you're. There go all your book sales, Steve, and there go all, there go all my podcast listeners, and there go your book sales. It's like I can just but see it, it really all sliding is, down the uh, you know, now. I'm, I'm vaccinated. I got vaccinated as soon as I could. My wife was one who was a doubter about it, and she fought it for a long time, and then she realized uh, that she needed to get the vax or she wasn't going to be able to pursue her livelihood which uh, involves traveling so she got it but uh, uh, yeah I think there's hysteria going on that we've become divided uh, a divided nation because of it and, and uh, I think it's really a shame we, we all need to kind of cool down and uh, be accepting of one another whether or not we go along with whether other people's ideas are or not we can still all be friends and we can we can respect people and you know follow the golden rule do unto others as you would have others do unto you and that, and I that's what I live by and I think if everybody did that the world would be a whole lot better place thank you for this wonderful book I appreciate it enjoyed it a lot and I know our listeners will enjoy it too everybody it's the witch of Amesbury matriarch of an advertising dynasty where can people get a hold of you? Well, and where can uh, the they book find your is book? on Amazon, and it's in uh, Kindle, it's in paperback, and it's also in hardcover. And uh, an easy way to get there would be to come to my website, uh, shmartin.com, shmartin.com. And up at the uh, top on the menu, there's a tab that says Books. Click on that. You'll see all my books, covers of them. The name of the book is The Witch of Avesbury. It's right in the middle of that uh page of of uh, covers of my books click on the cover it'll take you to uh, the page on Amazon where you can maybe read the first chapter or two and decide whether you what you want to buy it and you can buy it in one of uh, in three different forms you know so come to my website shmartin.com Well, Stephen, thank you very much. Uh, always interesting talks with you about these books. This one, The Witch of Amesbury, absolutely excellent. Sure enjoyed it, and I enjoyed thank today's interview. Thank you. Thank you for having interview. me, John. Thank I, you. I appreciate it.